0: Pray for us one more time before we get into the word. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from you. Thank you that you've given us a book that we can adhere by. Uh, Lord, help us to pay close attention to that word and to obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, each year Oxford Dictionary publishes their word of the year, encompassing the most popular words or words that kind of sum up the zeitgeist of a particular calendar year. Sometimes they're old words resurfaced other times they are new words derived from older words that have become common slang in 2021. In the middle of the COVID pandemic, the Oxford word of the year was Vax short for vaccination. Whether you had been vaxxed or were anti-vax, the word was buzzing around all around America. A year later, in 2022, the Oxford word of the year was more a phrase, goblin mode. Young people might know that. I had no idea what it was either. (laughs) People would go goblin mode to express a kind of behavior that was unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, greedy, become something of a common idea or terminology or mindset in our culture. In 2023, the the year we just passed, the Oxford Dictionary picked as its word of the year the popular Gen Z slang term, riz. Taken from the more commonly used word that those 40 and older among us know as charisma. Riz can be used as both a noun, he got riz, or as a verb, he's risen her up. It describes charm or style or the ability to pour it on to attract somebody else. I'll leave it to your own sensibilities, whether you have riz or not. (laughs) While you may have never used or heard of any of those words before today, I think the fact that they were picked as the most popular influential words of the previous years demonstrates something of our society's values. On the flip side, I wonder what we might consider as some of the least popular, some of the most despised words of the year, and what those words might say about us. Oxford does not publish or populate a list of the least popular words of the year, but it doesn't take much imagination to, to conjure up the words that we least like words that we despise, words that we buck against instantly. Two words immediately come to mind as perennial problem words wait and no. The ideas of delayed gratification and even worse, denied gratification seem to us as dangerous, as damaging, as downright ludicrous. Life with no inhibitions, with no restrictions, where I can have all that I see and I want is the only life for me. In many ways, whether we've expressed it or not, we all want to go goblin mode. We all want to live self-indulgent lives. We all want to live for ourselves, rejecting any outside structures, any outside rules, any outside expectations. That's the good life, or is it? What if our least favorite words, wait and even no, are actually the words we need to live by if we are to truly live? That's something of what we'll consider this morning in our passage as we look at what happens when we don't accept no. And when we don't say no. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 7 together. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you are using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 2 of those Bibles, Bibles. Genesis 3. And again, if you need a Bible of your own and don't have one, you can take that one with you. If there's not a Bible under your chair, there might be a Bible under the chair of someone next to you. If there's not a chair under that chair, just keep on down the line somewhere you will find a Bible. And someone might even give you their personal Bible if you don't have one. We want you to have your own copy of God's Word. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We read, now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that that when you eat of it, your, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, Here's what I think is the, the main idea of Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, the main idea of our passage in the sermon this morning. You can find it on your sermon notes page in your bulletins. We must beware of and resist the temptations of the devil to sin against God. It never turns out as promised. We must beware of and resist the temptations of the devil to sin against God because it never turns out as promised. As we observe this passage, I think we see three scenes. We see this description in verse one, and then we see this dialogue in verses two through five. And then we see a disastrous decision in verses six and seven. But rather than just seeing things play out in this text, I think the author, Moses, is calling us to do something about it in in response to the things that we see. Don't just observe, act accordingly. And so three actions, three activities we need to take in response to what we see here, which will serve as the, the three points of the sermon. Number one, know your enemy and know what he is like. We see that in verse one. Know your enemy and know what he is like. Number two, know your God and know his word accurately. We see that in verses two through five. Know your God and know his word accurately. And third, say no to sin and yes to the Lord. We see that in verses six through seven. Number one, know your enemy and know what he is like. In the previous passage at the end of chapter two, we were left with a serene scene of peace and joy and happiness as Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect companionship with each other and perfect fellowship with God in a perfect garden. We read there in in chapter two, verse 25, that the, the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. But notice the last verse of the passage that we just read in verse 7, how it reads with the man and the woman naked and ashamed, having to cover themselves. It prompts us to ask the question, what in the world happened? Why this drastic change? Well, the intervening verses tell us with verse 1 introducing a different scene and a different mood brought on by a different character. We read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The text fills us with all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Who is this serpent? Where did he come from? Why was he here? And this one text doesn't give us a bunch of answers to all those questions though later texts shine some light on some things. Who is this serpent? Well, in one respect, he's nothing more than a created being, like every other created being that roamed the earth. Notice how verse 1 identifies him with the other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This serpent was a literal, physical snake created on the first part of day 6 that we read about in chapter 1 slithering around in God's world that up to this point, God referred to as very good. But that's not all this snake is. We see at the latter part of verse one that unlike all the other animals, this serpent speaks. And unlike all the other animals, this one is more crafty, more shrewd, more cunning than all the rest. Well, that's a description not of all snakes, but this snake in particular, because of who possessed this snake, who acted and worked through this snake, the devil. But how do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us so. Well, where does the Bible tell us so? Silence, right? You ever notice how often we assume we know things are in the Bible, but can't necessarily place them? How how often we say, that's in the Bible, but don't know exactly where? Uh, We'll see in a few minutes how dangerous that can be. Uh, We need to have our our thoughts guided and guarded by the scriptures of God's word. We don't want to be a people who hold certain assertions and certain conclusions simply because of what we've been taught or what someone else has said, right? But we want to be people who hold those convictions because of what we see and read in the scriptures. And we need all of scripture. And so, yes, the serpent here is the devil because the Bible does tell us that. Where? Not here in Genesis 3, but later in the biblical text. Most explicitly in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. There we read of of Christ's victory over spiritual enemies. Where Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 tells us the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The serpent here is Satan inhabiting a snake's body and working through it. But that leads us to even more questions, doesn't it? Where did Satan come from? What happened to bring him on the scene? How was he able to work through other creatures? Isn't Satan bad? How did bad uh, come into an absolutely good world? But we don't know all the answers to all those things either. Other passages in the Bible, again, shine some light on it. Places like Jude chapter 2 or Jude verse 1 verse verse 6 and 2 Peter chapter 2. Speak of a, a heavenly insurrection where certain angels seemingly led by Satan, rebelled against God that led to their expulsion from heaven and judgment by the Lord. When this all happened, we don't know exactly. What led Satan and others to rebel when there was no sin in the world, we don't know exactly. And as we stated with previous texts in Genesis, notice just how uninterested the human author, Moses, And ultimately, the divine author God are in letting us know all those things. God, in his wisdom, has not determined to use his word to scratch every itch of curiosity. God has not determined to use his word to answer every conceivable question that we might have. God wants us to know what we absolutely need to know. And what we need to know in verse 1 is that we absolutely have an enemy and we need to know what that enemy is like. This ancient enemy, the serpent, the devil is crafty, is sneaky, is deceptive, is a slimy sucker who we need to look out for. And it's interesting that God here puts the description first in verse 1, not later on in the text after we see what actions the serpent does. And then we kind of sum up who he is. Now he wants us to know from the get-go who this kind of person is so that we don't have to make our own conclusions about him. God has already given us his character up front. Know what he's like and his activities are played out of who he is. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 then is meant to correct a few things that we might think about the devil. For one, Genesis chapter three, verse one, proves that the devil exists. The devil is no fabricated foe. The devil isn't like the Christian version of the boogeyman simply meant to spook people. No, the devil is real. And he has been a thorn in the side of people since the first of God's people. I don't see him, you might say. Well, if he was able to work through a serpent." How do you know he can't work through other creatures in other ways? Which leads to the second correction we might need that verse one provides that Satan is subtle. You know, I wonder if those of us who have no problem acknowledging Satan's existence might nonetheless miscalculate how he exists. I think as we live in an evil world with so much evil around us, uh, we might think of Satan, the evil one, and think primarily of his power. We might locate our thoughts around of him, around his his great boldness and influence. I mean, look at how obvious at work he is in this evil world. But you know how the Bible, starting here in Genesis and progressing through the rest of the scriptures, primarily describe Satan, describe the devil, not by his great power and his great boldness, but by his great deception. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, talk about his cunningness. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says he disguises himself as an angel of light. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, emphasizes his scheming. And again, as we looked at in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, he's labeled a deceiver. The devil in the red suit and a pitchfork is easy to spot and easy to avoid. The devil in the pulpit? Not so much. The devil in your home? Not so much. The devil in you? Not so much. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 26 talks about people who, unbeknownst to them, have been caught in the snare of the devil, captured to do his will. They never call themselves devil worshipers. They'd never say, I'm a slave of the devil. Not many people do. The devil doesn't disseminate a sign-up sheet for spiritual suicide. That's too obvious. No, his M.O. is to be underhanded, scheming, slyly seducing you until he has you and you don't even know that you've been had. We need to know we have an enemy and we need to know what he is like. But even more importantly, we need to know our God and know his word accurately. That's our second point. We need to know your God and know his word accurately. It's been said that that federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits. They study genuine bills until they master the real thing, and then the bogus thing becomes very evident. Perhaps you've heard that before. Oh, and I think it's a fitting analogy of what we need in our spiritual lives as well. We need to know that there's a counterfeit out there, a deceiver out to deceive us, But in order to spot him, in order to not be deceived, we don't need to primarily study him and his ways. We don't need a course on demonology, the study of demons. We need more a study, a deep dive into theology, a study of God and his word. We see we need to take this action to to study the Lord more, to know his word more from a kind of negative example in this text. At the end of verse 1, we move from a description of the devil into a dialogue that he initiates with the first woman, Eve. Why does Satan go to her? Perhaps to undermine even early on God's ordering of things. Adam was made to lead and protect his wife, but the serpent sidesteps that order and goes straight to the woman. Perhaps he knew that she'd received God's commands secondhand. And therefore, there was greater opportunity for her to to mishandle it and to misconvey it accurately. Sort of like the second or third or fourth person in the telephone game. In any case, Satan goes and he speaks to Eve, which in in and of itself must have been disarming. I mean, up to this point, God has spoken all throughout chapter one. Man has spoken, Adam, at the end of chapter 2, has praised, this is the woman that God has given me, and now the serpent speaks. In other words, he presents himself as a friendly, as one of you, speaking the same language, talking the same talk, but with sinister purposes. The serpent speaks, and he asks the woman, "Did, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden'?" And notice the tactic here. Satan doesn't lead with a left hook. He doesn't first heave a haymaker. No, he's subtle. He doesn't start off with an all-out assault on God, but is content to creep his way to his ultimate goal by creating a hint of doubt, a hint of distrust in the form of a question. He asks, did God actually say, did God really say you shall not. It's a question that begins by giving the sense of of shock, of surprise, of incredulity, that God would actually forbid you from something, that God would actually say no to you. What kind of God is like that? Certainly not a good God would do something like that, like tell you no. And notice the way Satan exaggerates the prohibition. He asked, did God really say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? An examination of our previous passages. If you lift your eyes back up to Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, reveals that God first granted freedom to eat from every tree of the garden. And he only prohibited eating from one tree of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan takes don't eat from one and twist it into don't eat from none. Did God actually say that? Certainly he didn't, did he? There must be some mistake, some, some miscommunication. God wouldn't be so restrictive, would he? Doesn't he want the best for you? Very subtly, simply by asking a question. Satan takes God's word and positions it not as something that we need to sit under as God's subjects, but as something that needs to sit under us, subject to our judgment, to our interpretation. God and his word are suddenly put on trial by man. That's still the case, isn't it? There's a constant move to question God and his word. If it's really good for us, especially for us today, we know we are enlightened. 21st century, we know what's best. Our ancients, the grandparents and great-grandparents, they were fools. They listened to this book. It, It was good back then, maybe, but certainly not for today. I mean, the Bible can't really be authoritative and good for us today. What, with all its boundaries? Boundaries are bad. Inhibitions are harmful, we're told. Satan is still in the business of burying his true desires with questions that question God's authority, that question God's goodness, that create seeds of doubt about God. You perhaps heard them in one form or another. God wouldn't want you to be unhappy, would he? It becomes the seed that grows into divorcing a spouse whose company you no longer enjoy or whose body you no longer are attracted to. Did God really say you need to stay with her, with him forever, that you can't have anybody else? That's unreasonable. Did God really say you can't ever have sex is the exaggerated question that bucks against God's prohibition of sex outside of marriage. No matter that sex inside the bounds of marriage are celebrated and encouraged and even commanded in the scripture. The fact that there's any restriction is raised to the ultimate level to raise critiques about God's care. Did God really say that you shouldn't love people? Is the overstated objection that questions why God's word would prohibit you from marrying another man if you're a man or marrying another woman if you're a woman, isn't God a God of love? What's the problem then? with me loving who I want and marrying those I love. Did God really say children can't be Christians? Is the hyperbolic query sometimes raised to critique careful membership practices, a careful examination of young people's lives before giving the sign of baptism and admitting into church membership. Me and some sisters had some good convo about this yesterday about not discouraging children's faith on one hand, but also not hastily confirming it on the other. Did God really say women can't do anything in the church? Is the embellished inquiry seeking to provoke protest about why women can't do everything in the church, including pastor and preach, disregarding that those are the only things that the Bible disallows sisters from doing while encouraging all the other opportunities and gifts that they should employ in the life of God's people. The questions, uh, questions often can be silent killers, uh, pose sometimes unassumingly to get us to interrogate God and to interpret his word based on what we want and what we feel is right. And to Satan's initial question, the woman responds in verses two and three, Look there with me, Genesis chapter 2 verses, uh, Genesis chapter 3 verses 2 and 3. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, now notice some things here, some, some steps towards the woman giving in to Satan's subtle attack. First, notice how she speaks as the representative for she and her husband. She says in verse 2, we may eat. Satan had approached her and not her husband, seeking to subvert God's order of things. And she's seemingly taken the bait. And her husband, Adam, has allowed her to. We'll see in a moment, he's present there with her but it's passive the entire time. He doesn't speak up. He doesn't protect. He permits the serpent to speak with his wife and his wife to engage in a back and forth dialogue with this dangerous being before her. Eve becomes the spokesman or spokeswoman speaking for the, the couple as a whole. We may eat. Now secondly, notice what she says when she speaks. At first glance, Eve's words seem commendable. They might seem like a bold rebuttal to Satan's questioning, a good defense of God's character and of God's commands. But as you look more closely, you see there's some, some problems, namely as it relates to what she omits and what she adds. Look again with me at verse 2. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Is that what God said? But well, it's close. But look back up to chapter 2 verse 17. What God actually said is that you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Eve leaves out what God made sure to emphasize, the abundance of provision and the great freedom to enjoy it all. God didn't just say we may eat, but we may freely eat. We may surely eat. And not just from the trees in the garden, as Eve has stated, but from every tree of the garden. And oh, how many they were, there were that were made for man and woman to freely enjoy. And you might say, oh, now you're just nitpicking. I mean, she was close enough. I mean, she was just paraphrasing things. But friends, we open ourselves to problems when all we know are paraphrases of the Bible. What we think verses say in our own words. We need to know God's own words accurately. We leave out things that God intentionally put in to protect us. And when you take those things that God has intentionally given to protect us and you summarize it into your own words, you leave yourself open for assault. God has worked those things in. He includes the surely and the every and the you may and you must not. And thou shalt and you will for our guarding and for our guiding to keep us from temptation and sin. If we continue to look at Eve's words, we see that it continues to be filled with some errors. Look again at verse three. After misstating the exact provision that God gave, Eve now misquotes the prohibition. She says at the beginning of verse three, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Is that what God said? Well, again, the answer is is no. In fact, Eve ignores mentioning the fact that there were actually two trees in the midst of the garden. Lift your eyes again over to chapter two, verse nine. We read in chapter two, verse nine, that out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden right there along with the other one. The tree of life was right there freely to enjoy. The tree of life was right there freely to be had. Only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, We learn in verse 17 of chapter 2 was the one that was prohibited by God. Again, just just subtly see how Eve is seemingly given in to Satan's subtle attack, beginning to view things and state things from his perspective of what God has kept away instead of what he's freely given to enjoy. Another error is, is that she adds to God's word. She says towards the end of verse three, not only shall you not eat from this tree that that she fails to specifically name in the the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? You you should not only not eat of it, but you shall not touch it. In chapter two, verse 17, God never said anything about not touching the tree. Now, why you would touch a tree you don't want to eat from, you shouldn't, right? But still, all he said was of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Whether Eve got this extra prohibition from Adam about not touching it, we don't know. Or maybe she just conjured it up at the moment. With Satan right there before her. It all adds up to her looking through the lens of God's restrictiveness. His overbearingness. God is harsh. Not only does he not want you to eat of the tree, we can't even touch the thing. Or we might die. Lastly, see how Eve even in thinking about death and mentioning death, suddenly dilutes the punishment for breaking God's commands. She says, God said you shall not eat of, the fruit, eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But God actually said, in the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die you will certainly die. God was meaning to put extra emphasis on what happens when you break his commands. And even just slightly, Eve just dilutes that a little bit. It seems rather small, one word missing. But again, those seemingly small omissions, those minor additions, those slight paraphrases set us down a slope towards massive rebellion. We see that in the text. When you add a little bit or take a little bit away or paraphrase a little bit, you never know where it will lead you. Many people's spiritual lives have been wrecked by just a little bit. We will learn later on in the biblical text, a a, a little leaven. Leaven's the whole lump. Eve's misquoting of God's word led her to being misled and things turned out miserably that we need to know exactly what God's word says and turn away the temptations of the evil one. Friends, that's why we're committed to expositional preaching here at Temple Hills Baptist Church. While we mean to every Sunday, not just preach what we want to preach or what's going on in the culture around us or what we feel like preaching, why the person, the man up here in the pulpit opens up the Bible. And while we consecutively, generally, work through books of the Bible, So that God sets the agenda so that we make sure that we touch all the words that he wants us to touch. That we listen to every word the Lord wants us to listen to. That we obey every single word the Lord wants us to obey. That's why we need to be committed to our personal Bible reading. We need more of God's word than simply on Sundays because Satan's attacks and temptations don't just happen on Sundays. That's not going to come for you Sunday through Saturday, 24-7. And you're going to need not just Sunday's sermon. You're going to need Monday's devotional and Tuesday's study and Wednesday's Bible study and Thursday's whatever. You're going to need multiple touch points of God's word to soak in your heart to keep you from Satan and his devices. Amen. Friends, read your Bibles outside of church. That is not a legalistic command. That's how Satan would also deceive you. Oh, this legalism. No, that's keeping your butt from going to hell. Read your Bibles. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I love Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings are absolutely necessary. And Sunday mornings are absolutely not sufficient. They can't do everything for you. You're going to need that word in you throughout the week. Read that word. If you need some help, enlist the Bible reading buddy, right? We don't need to go solo here. Some of you are doing that, reading the Bible in groups. If you're already doing that, keep doing that. If you need some help to like spur you on to reading more of God's word, reach out to us, reach out to your elders. We love to connect you with other members to help you read the Bible more and to read the Bible better. So we need to commit to scripture memory. You need to know exactly what the Bible says, including chapter and verse. You are not too old to learn scripture. You are not too young to learn scripture. I guarantee there are certain theme songs and radio songs that that you and I can quote from memory right now. Whether we're young or old. Some of us know all the words to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme song. You could do that right now. You know all the words of the Cosby Show, it's a different world, and you ain't watched that show in years. You can retain things and you can learn things. Wrap your mind around God's word. Enough of being okay with the Bible says somewhere, right? Have specific verses and commit them to memory to guard you against the wiles and the temptations of the evil one. Perhaps start by memorizing Psalm chapter one or Psalm chapter 23, start with a favorite right? Just a few verses. Uh, kids, you are not too young to memorize scripture. Uh, let me set a challenge out for our little ones. If you're a teenager or younger, try to memorize the entire Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 17, right? So that you might know what God desires of you made in his image and might not do what God does not desire, right? Commit God's Word to memory. We all need to know God's Word accurately so that we do not succumb to the temptations of the evil one. Satan, having seen Eve give an entry by engaging him in conversation, then subtly and steadily adopting his questioning of God and his word and what it really says, and now he goes in for the kill. He says to the woman in verses 4 and 5, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. From a subtle question in verse 1, we now have an outright rejection of God's word in verses 4 and 5. You see, friends, Satan moves in degrees. You give him an inch, he'll take a mile. You give him a mile, he'll take a foot. You give him a foot, he'll take a yard. I don't know if I got that. <laughs> that right right don't give them nothing right <laughs> not gonna turn out good okay <laughs> <laughs> you will not surely die he says countering what god clearly had previously said would happen should his people disobey him by eating of the tree that he had forbidden them to eat you see what satan does here that, that, that people are always doing. He denies a thing called judgment. There is no punishment. You're going to be good. Do you It's fine. And Satan presents himself as a kind of counter authority whose word is even able to override God's. I don't care what God said. Listen to what I'm telling you. You won't surely die. It creates a crisis of belief. Who will you listen to? And to win the woman to his side, Satan supposes to even know the mind of God. He says in verse five, the reason God has given you this restriction is not for your good, but for your harm. It's to hold you back. God knows that when you eat of the tree, you will be like God. You will be like him, knowing good and evil. Uh, Satan cast sinful selfish motives for God's prohibitions. He wants to keep all the authority, all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the godness to himself and not let you in on the goods. God just a crab in the barrel trying to keep you down, to keep you from being like God. Of course, the irony is that if Eve had remembered God's word, if Eve had believed God's word, she'd remember that she and Adam were already like God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 God made man and woman in the image of God. They were already like Him to reflect His glory and to represent His rule on earth. And yet, here was a creature that Adam and Eve were made to rule over a serpent proposing to tell Eve that what God had given wasn't enough, that she should have more, that she needed more to actually be God. You see, Satan never leads you to cherish all that you have. He always makes you disgruntled about all that you don't have and to lust after all that you could have. But he never tells you the full truth. Eating of the tree that God had forbidden would indeed give Adam and Eve knowledge of good and evil, but in a way that they weren't intended to have it. Knowledge, wisdom were to be mediated by God and in relationship to him. As the book of Proverbs tells us, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. The the deep love and reverence for him Uh, they were made to know what's good and what was evil by what God told them was good and what was evil, not by experiencing it themselves. Satan said, you can cut, cut God out of the picture and get this knowledge for yourself and in the process be like God himself. It was a lie, a lie that Eve believed because she failed to meditate on and believe God and his word. And it led to a disastrous decision, one that we must not follow. let we'll leads our third and final point, our last point. Say no to sin and say yes to the Lord. Say no to sin and yes to the Lord. Attempted by Satan's promises of God-like status, Eve moves from dialogue to decision, from listening to acting. Let's look at verse 6 again. We read, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Well, again, this tree was not more beautiful than any other tree. Back in chapter 2, verse 9 that we looked at earlier, we read that every tree was pleasant to the sight and good for food but our eyes tend to gravitate towards what we can't have, don't they? And notice the progression here. Eve listened to Satan's words. She weighed them against God's words. She concluded that Satan's words were better. She lifted her eyes and she looked upon the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with adoration. She raised her arm. She reached out her hand She grabbed hold of the fruit. She snatched it from the tree. She raised it to her mouth. She opened up her lips. She bit down on the fruit. Then she raised her arm again. She passed it to her husband, who also opened up his mouth, bit down on the fruit. And all the world has since been wrecked. Friends, there's a a whole lot of steps. Steps. Between deception and destruction. Between temptation and sin. And it happens oh so quick. Have you noticed that in your own life? After you've done some crazy thing. Some terrible thing. And you look back in retrospect. You're like, how in the world did that happen? And we say kind of sin belittling. Minimizing things like, yeah, I fell into sin. (laughs) you ain't fall. You ran deep into that thing. And if you were honest and look back, you can see all the little moments that led up to it. You know, you, you, you saw her in the, in the, in the workplace. You, you, you observed what she was wearing. You made a mental note of it. You said, I'm going to put that away. But then later on, you saw her at the, the coffee machine and you said something to her about her appearance. Uh, she says on the back about yours. You had to exchange emails for his work project. Another email pinged up later that night. It led to a future conversation and you ended up in her bed the next day. In retrospect, you can see all those steps. In the moment, they unfold so quick. Eve, in the moment, took all these disastrous steps. And yet there was a progression along the way. I wonder when you look back at your life even now, what trajectory are you on? Are you on the brink of believing Satan's lies? Are you already fantasizing or planning ways, planning times, planning circumstances to carry out some sin? Are you already planning right now what I'm going to do when I leave church today? I can't wait till he stopped talking about temptation and sin because I can't wait till that sin that's waiting on my phone or on my laptop, or work tomorrow or school tomorrow. What steps do you need to cut off right now before they lead to the next step that leads to your destruction? Sin never just happens. It's a path to impurity. There's a road to rebellion. Where are you on that road right now? Friends, take this time And see it as a gift from the Lord to put a huge speed bump in your plans. To put chains on the road to flatten the tires that are racing down the road to rebellion against God. May the Lord use his word for that purpose even now. And did you notice even in verse 6 what's conspicuously missing? Any mention about God. And even the previous dialogue with the devil, God was, was on the mind. And Satan asked in verse one, did God really say? And Eve responded by paraphrasing what God said in verses two and three. Satan then moved to outright denying what God said and and intimating what God really knows in verses four and five, right? Even if there was progressive steps towards pushing God away, God was at least on the mind. But in verse six, In this decisive act, there's no God at all. Eve's focus is now primarily on the things that will satisfy her and not on God in the least. She wants what she sees, and God has been relegated to the sidelines. She says yes to sin and no to any thought of God. And that's often the case with temptation and sin. The more we can push God out of the picture, the more things in our view become all-encompassing and all-satisfying. I mean, talk to somebody going through a trial, or talk to someone struggling with sin, or think about your own experiences, and notice how seldom God comes to mind, how seldom God comes up in the conversation. It's always the other person, or the problem, or the temptation. Very seldom is it God in our thoughts, and in our conversations. It is convenient to push thoughts of God out so that we can feast on what's in front of us. So we can feed on the temptation to be angry, to be vengeful, to be gossipy, to be critical, to slander, to sin. We must instead keep our minds stayed on the Lord. We must say yes to him, yes to obeying him, yes to treasuring him above everything else, and no to every bit of sin that dishonors and displeases him. Eve failed to do that. Adam, who was with her, passively sitting by as a passive participant, failed to do that. We'll see more of the tragic dealings and his experience in, in, in this whole experience next week. And as a result, sin and shame was produced. Now, look at the outcome of it all in verse 7. We read that after eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then the eyes of both were naked. And they knew that they were naked, the the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The naked innocence and intimacy that they shared in front of each other and before God has been destroyed. And immediately their space is filled with shame. They had not eaten and become more like God. Instead, they had eaten and become less like God. Seeking to cover themselves up, to hide themselves as image bearers from another image bearer. They no longer reflected rightly God's holy character. They had sinned and had become sinners. They have not been satisfied, as Satan promised, but disappointed and devastated. That's not just with them, friends. Temptations to sin always overpromise and under Always tell you about the thrill that you're gonna have. And you realize it might be thrilling, but only for a second. And then comes judgment, guilt, condemnation, shame. And if those don't things don't happen, that's even worse for you. It's even more destructive. Sin always leads to shame, to guilt. And even worse, to death, to eternal death, to eternal judgment at the hands of a good and a perfect and a holy God. Were we left with sin and shame, with Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, with Adam and Eve and leaves, it would leave us with no hope. I mean, if, if, if they were perfect and gave in to Satan's temptations and sin, how can we escape And how can we escape the shared judgment for sin? Because we ain't perfect. Well, the New Testament answers with another scene. Another scene where the serpent tempts again. But this time it's not Adam and Eve, but the true and better Adam. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. In Matthew chapter four, we see there that Jesus is not in a perfect garden like the perfect first couple. Instead, he's in a wilderness being tempted by the evil one and and tempted like the devil did with Eve to be like God. This time, the devil attempting Jesus to prove his godness by doing miracles. Three times Satan comes for Jesus. He says, if you are the son of God, prove it. Command these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from this temple. And then lastly, he gives great promises like he did to Eve. I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world and all their glory if you fall down and worship me. But unlike Eve and unlike Adam, Jesus did not give in to the devil's temptations. His eyes were set not on pleasing his flesh, but doing those things that pleased his heavenly father. He was intent on saying no to sin and yes to the Lord. And so with every one of Satan's temptations, Jesus did what Eve should have done. He kept accurately presenting God's word. It is written, he said, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God alone, and him only shall you serve. Jesus lived a life of obedience to God, resisting the temptations of the devil, and he lived that life for us in our place. For all of us who, like Eve and who, like Adam, have failed to resist the temptations of the devil and instead have succumbed to them over and over and over again. And then finally, Jesus went to to a cross. And there, that was for us as well in our place. And even on the cross, the devil was still tempting through the voice of religious leaders who we're told in the gospels are a brood of serpents. The ancient serpent has now enlisted help, and now a whole brood of serpents, the religious leaders, are Tempting Jesus on the cross, the voice of Satan calling out, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Serve yourself. Do what's pleasing to your own flesh. Save yourself. Prove that you're Godlike. But Jesus would prove that he was Godlike, not by saving himself, but by saving us. By not getting down from the cross, by not saying I want to please myself, but I want to please the Father, and by pleasing him, carry out his will. Not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus died a sacrificial death on that cross for our sins so that we could be saved from not only the shame and guilt of sin, but the judgment of sin, the penalty of sin death. And Jesus did indeed demonstrate that he was God, not by getting down from the cross, but three days later coming out of a sealed grave, showing that he had power over sin and over death and over this old ancient enemy, the serpent. That one who from day one had gotten a foothold on humanity, had gotten the first woman and the first man to give in to temptation, And has gotten every single other man or woman since then to give in to temptation and cause every single other man and woman to give in to death was defeated by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so for all of us who turn from our sins and trust in the buried risen Jesus for salvation will be saved and will be freed from the power of sin and from the penalty of sin, from the sway and possession of the devil and given free and new and glorious life with Christ forever. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that's what you most need to respond to this morning. You might hear, be here even like, I'm too intellectual to believe this hocus-pocus about some devil and some temptation. Let me tell you not to trust your own thoughts. Maybe you are already being deceived that there is no devil. Maybe you're already being deceived that you're okay with God. Maybe you're being deceived that there is no judgment for sin. Let me tell you on the authority of God's word that you are destined to die. And after death comes the judgment. Don't wait for that day. Trust in the one who conquers sin and death and the grave, Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, keep trusting in Jesus, keep turning to the Lord and keep turning away from sin and temptation. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your all-sufficient Savior and your all-sufficient hope. We must beware of and resist the temptations of the devil to sin against God. It never turns out as promise. We must trust in the good and great promises of God. For all those who do turn from sin and trust in the Lord, there will be everlasting life in the presence of our great God and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that it would not just wash over us, but it would find root in our hearts and that you would instruct us, Lord. Transform our hearts and thoughts. Help us to be obedient to your word, to fight sin, and to flee to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Uh, We pray all this in his name and for his glory. Amen.